This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Uh, a lecture last night at McMaster University Medical Center went uh, on on how to handle the opioid crisis. How often do people receive uh, these types of addictions? What can we been What can be done to help? We talk about this all the time. What we rarely talk about are success stories and uh, what's the what's the journey getting better? What's the what's the journey getting off all of this? And are there success stories or is it just a mountain of doom and gloom? To talk more about all of this, Dr. Dr. James McKillop is with us, Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neurosciences, McMaster University's uh, DeGroote School of Medicine and Director of the Peter Boris Center of Addictions Research, St. Joseph's Healthcare, Hamilton and Mac. And he is on the line with us now. James, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. We appreciate this. My pleasure. Good to talk to you, Scott. You know, James, we hear so much about uh, the negatives, the bad things, the terrible things that happened and, and how this is just uh, an epidemic uh, what are the good stories? How is treatment possible? Are there stories of people kicking this and, and getting off it and going on to lead normal lives? There absolutely are, Scott. And I think the, the, it is important to emphasize what a, uh, a, a tragic time we're going through now and the scope of the epidemic. But, but the other side of that coin is that there is uh, good treatment out there and recovery is possible. Um, what we know is that uh, many people are able to ultimately change their behavior and uh, able to reach full recovery. And there's no silver bullet. There's no single thing that will uh, cure addiction once and for all, uh, no magic pill. But there are lots of things that together um, with a good care team can help people beat it and, and really uh, regain their lives. Uh, doctor, you even say uh, it's possible to recover, which doesn't sound reassuring. Uh, it almost sounds like a diagnosis for a cancer patient. Um, what are the chances? Well, it's, it's hard to say um, in, in very black and white terms. Uh, what we do know is that uh, even by some estimates, the majority of people will ultimately be successful. And uh, it's by no means a, uh, a minority of individuals who, who, who struggle. But the, the, the evolving perspective, perspective in um, addiction treatment and research is that often these become uh, chronic conditions that have to be managed across the lifespan, not unlike many of the chronic conditions we see, like heart disease or obesity, and people... Uh, are successful, but sometimes have um, lapses or even relapses and need to reboot and um, uh, regain some traction in their lives. So we think of it less as something that is um, fixed for good once and more a condition that needs uh, high quality, often intensive care um, and ongoing care, um, often adaptive care uh, to the way a person's life changes. And so it may be one set of medications and therapies to start in crisis, and over time it may evolve into more focus on the family or uh, vocational training. And so it's really a much more holistic perspective that we're taking now. Is this about pain management as well as addiction? I mean, or, or, or the majority or a good portion of these scenarios, someone who has had an issue, been prescribed it, and then got, and then became addicted to it after, you know, and continued using it after the condition 
uh, had been cured or had been alleviated in some way? Or are these people that have chronic pain so have to use something to manage it and it's just a case of managing it with this drug uh, successfully, balancing everything? Scott, it is exactly an issue of pain management and addiction. And the reality is that opioids in particular are among the most powerful pain relievers that we have in our armory in terms of managing pain. So they're going to have to always be a part of um, pain management. And uh, the risk in the context of the opioid crisis is not letting the pendulum swing too far um, uh, back in the other direction so that people who have significant pain issues um, and need opioid therapies can't have access to them. That being said, there are lots of different strategies that have been shown to be effective for managing pain, and opioids alone should not be part of um, a, a comprehensive strategy. So uh, th there has to be a, an evolution in terms of pain management, in terms of more comprehensive care. And we do now have a, um, a new kind of patient with an opioid use disorder or addiction to, to opioids um, who was introduced first um, because of a pain issue. And, and that didn't used to be the case. If you go back um, a decade or so, much of the, the opioid addiction that existed was largely to illicit opioids, drugs like um, heroin, for example, and uh, was not a function of people first being introduced to the drugs in, in the context of a medical condition. Now, by some estimates, 40% of the people who become addicted start um, taking a medication that was prescribed to them by a physician. What does it say, the fact, doctor, that this, is, this started as a prescription issue? Well, I, th I think that it um, really raises the complexity of the, the problem, that, that this isn't a, a, a simple issue. In, in many ways, I can give you an example of a simple issue. Um, we know that smoking is a major problem, and a recommendation uh, can be very easily given to, for, for smokers who are currently smoking to seek treatment and stop, and there's no healthy level of smoking, um, nor is there really a role for tobacco in uh, medical care. That's not the case for opioids. Opioids are part of standard medical care. They're very powerful tools, and their invention historically w represents a watershed in, uh, in medicine. Um, However, there's a dark side. The dark side is that they operate on the same underlying neurobiology that uh, is responsible for aspects of pleasure, aspects of not just pain relief, but psychological relief. And so we have to manage that tension between their uh, potency for um, best practices in medicine and their potency for high risk when it comes to addiction. So how did we get here, doctor? Because again, many have said that these have been around for a long time. How did it get out of hand? Well, it, it, it's an interesting story and uh, really a confluence of influences. And that was actually one of the um, foci in the lecture last night. How did we wind up in this situation? And we, we titled it a cautionary tale because a lot of the uh, factors that contributed were not necessarily um, ill-intended ones. One of the ways that uh, more opioids were prescribed was an increasing focus on pain management and advocacy to increasingly assess pain and aggressively manage pain among patients with these powerful drugs. And no one would say that inadequate pain management is a good thing, but increasing 
um, the widespread use of powerful opioids um, in part contributed to this. Another factor was that science and technology have been very successful in developing new synthetic man-made drugs that act on the same system but are vastly more powerful than the ones that are found in nature. The, the good side of that is that you have very powerful drugs that can be helpful in medical practice. The downside is that um, they have very high toxicity levels. Drugs like fentanyl and carfentanil, um, for example, are some of the, the new synthetic opioids. And um, at microscopic doses can lead to respiratory depression or basically the suppression of breathing and in turn death. And so um, our technology has advanced our um, uh, options as far as medicines go. And with their potency for pain relief uh, comes high potency for side effects too, some of them very dangerous toxic side effects. And then by some accounts, um, uh, some have criticized the pharmaceutical industry for... That was the, where I was going to go next, James. W- yes. What about Big Pharma? What role do they play in this? Uh, you know, obviously OxyContin comes to mind. It was, so, right. it was sold as a clean drug that wouldn't do this, and then it did. So, so what and, and role do they have in this? I, I think that they are one of those major influences, and that's why a number of U.S. states are now taking legal action against pharmaceutical companies, in particular Purdue, the maker of... Uh, OxyContin, but a number of different um, uh, manufacturers because they believe that they were excessively marketed in terms of being low in terms of abuse liability, when in in reality uh, they had similar abuse liability to uh, the conventional opioids. And I think that, um, again, the development of new drugs for treating uh, conditions that have been with us for as long as mankind, like pain, is a really important thing but there has to be responsible marketing and appropriate uh, regulation and control over drugs that do have significant side effect profiles, including addiction like these. So you can look at trends around patient advocacy. You can look at trends in technology. You can look at the role of the pharmaceutical industry. And then the other aspect here is that there are new and dangerous sources of opioids, especially coming from Um, China, for example, where the manufacture of these powerful opioids has not been regulated until relatively recently, uh, factories there were able to synthesize these compounds and ship them to Canada in small amounts that could nonetheless um, wreak havoc in a city, for example. Uh, And and that created a further risk factor that has created the, the current crisis that we're experiencing. Let me give you an example of this, Scott. So in 2002, there were only 10 fatalities in Ontario from fentanyl. Now, that, that's not a good number, obviously, but it's a handful. Um, in 2014, there were nearly 180. So that's about a 1,700% increase over that decade. And those kinds of drugs have really insidiously become a part of the drug landscape here and in turn have created... Uh, terrible toxic reactions among people who don't even know that they're taking them necessarily. So it's really a confluence of pernicious factors. Is is it a bigger problem with prescription drugs or those illegally coming in from places like China? Well, I think, uh, you know, this is is entirely opinion, but I think that there is now an appreciation that prescription drugs need to be more heavily regulated and physicians are being much more cautious. The new... uh, 2017 opioid guidelines developed at McMaster recommend much more caution. And there are many more aspects of the system in place that reduce 
the likelihood of uh, traditional prescription diversion. Or basically, a- expand taking... on that a bit, James. How is the way we prescribe these now different from how they were a few years ago? Well, I, I think that the there is is much more appreciation for the dangers. And there is much more caution on the part of physicians in terms of renewing prescriptions and uh, not giving doses to start with post-surgery, for example, or um, post-simple back pain or um, knee pain that could lead to uh, the beginnings of a dependency. So you, you have to start for prescription drug misuse right at the, the start of the distributor in terms of the prescribing physician. And as that regulation has increased, unfortunately, what's happened is now people who had become dependent are seeking opioids illicitly. And they're seeking what they may think are prescription drugs on the street, but are actually compounded drugs, uh, including things like fentanyl and other high potency uh, compounds that are coming from abroad. And and that's where I think the, the, the danger has shifted somewhat, that it's not prescription drugs coming from a physician per se as much. Hmm. Um, and the, the street opioid, sometimes in what looks like prescription form, uh, is more dangerous. But it, it, it's hard to know. It's a very shifting landscape out there. Uh, we got about 30 seconds left. Where do you see this problem in five years? Well, I wish I could say we're going to have it licked. I think that uh, what we need to do is appreciate the, the scale and the severity and act now at every level of the system to, to really rein in the problem. And that goes from uh, regulating what comes in and out of Canada, uh, looking at prescribing practices, focusing on providing emergency care in the form of naloxone kits to rescue people who are in overdose, to access to methadone and buprenorphine treatment, the medications that have been shown to help people who are seeking treatment, and also more intensive long-term psychosocial treatment to help people really recover their lives fully. Dr. James McKillop has been with us, Professor of Psychiatry, Behavioral Neurosciences for the Groot School of Business, or sorry, the Groot School of Medicine uh, at McMaster University. Uh, Doctor, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Great talking to you, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We've talked a lot about, uh, of course, asylum seekers and people coming in. It started, I guess, last winter. Uh, Emerson, Manitoba, people crossing there uh, in just terrible conditions in the middle of winter, some even losing digits, uh, making the cross. Then, of course, uh, Quebec, over 10,000 in the last year, uh, mostly of Haitian descent. Uh, This because of, uh, remember the Haitian earthquake way back when? Lots were given uh, um, special priority at that point. That's running out, I guess, in the United States. They're worried about being deported. So they pretty much make up the most of these asylum seekers through Quebec. Uh, The rest, uh, India, Mexico, Colombia, Turkey, according to uh, the Quebec Immigration Ministry. Uh, So now, and I guess this has been ongoing and, of course, increased over the summer months, and what's come up recently is the RCMP asking certain questions and asking people specifically about their feeling, uh, their religion, their feelings on religious headgear, uh, this sort of thing. And, of course, uh, Safety Minister Ralph Goodale spoke up and said, uh, no more of that. So what can they ask? What can't they ask? Uh, are they overstepping their boundary? And who gave them permission to do so? Uh, to talk more about all of this, Joel Sandaluk is with us, partner, Mamam Sandaluk and Kingwell LLP, and on the line with us now. Joel, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. It's my pleasure. 
Uh, what can and can't the RCMP ask asylum seekers that are crossing into the country illegally? Well, they can ask them really anything relevant. Uh, so this whole controversy came from a questionnaire that was prepared, and I guess inadvertently provided to one of the refugee claimants who showed it to his lawyer in Toronto. Um, and there's a lot of questions on, on this uh, questionnaire that are perfectly reasonable. Where are you from? How long have you been in the United States? Why are you leaving the United States? Why didn't you come to a regular border crossing? A lot of, a lot of these questions are very reasonable. Um, and what the, the two issues that have really kind of raised the most uh, objections is one is, what is your opinion about, about ISIS, about the Islamic State? You know, I mean, there's really only one answer for that. Um, but then there was a second question here, number 31, that's really more of a, a value statement. Uh, you, know, how do you, you know, how do you feel about uh, if your boss were to be a woman? How do you feel about women who not, do not wear, you know, various head coverings? And I guess the idea behind it is it's meant to be a screening device to basically identify people for more enhanced screening. Uh, ultimately, though, it's got no bearing whatsoever on somebody's ability to claim refugee protection in Canada. And it's really not even good police work. Uh, and I think what happened was uh, the, uh, the minister recognized that this is just its ridiculous and irrelevant it has no value to ask an asylum seeker this and you know and discontinue the practice but it seems like it was something that started locally uh locally from the the RCMP in Quebec who were just trying to manage uh you know to expedite the security screens of people who were crossing the border and they felt that setting up a series of questions was a good way to do it it just it was just a couple of the questions didn't make a ton of sense do we know uh how many questions there were and what they were exactly yeah, the the the, uh, the questionnaire can be found online. There's basically 40 questions, uh, three pages long, and there's not, I don't know, I mean, the questions are, for the most part, very reasonable, right? How did you travel? Who did you travel with? Uh, why are you crossing? Where you're crossing and when you're crossing? Uh, have you used any other names? Have you got a criminal record? Have you ever been arrested? Like these are all very, you know, very reasonable, legitimate questions. It, it's basically just sort of the the religious profiling questions that are what, what about that are the, problematic. What about the question? What are your thoughts on ISIS? Why is that a bad question? It's not that it's a bad question. It's just an it's an irrelevant question for the uh, the purpose of the refugee claim. You know, and it's not. And the other thing, how is it irrelevant? Point, cons- how is it irrelevant considering that they're refugees or asylum seekers in the world that we live in today? How is that? You know, I mean, you said it's obvious. The question is, you know, the answer is obvious. Well, if the answer is obvious, why not ask it? Is there harm in that? No, is there harm? In, but no, there's no harm in asking their opinions on the Nazis. There's no harm in asking their opinion about uh, Donald Trump. Um, I guess the point is, it's not. It's not that there's a harm in asking the question. It's that there's, it doesn't make any sense to ask it. It's, it's, it's irrelevant. It's poor police work. But they're coming and in from a country where we really don't know the, the details of their existence at this point. They're crossing a border illegally. Why is it not a common-sense question? I mean, you know, if they're crossing at a border illegally and they've got all their papers in order, I can see your point. But let's remember they're coming in through a porous border. Why is it not a legitimate question? Well, mainly that's not a legitimate question because it doesn't have any bearing on the refugee determination process, asking questions about their... Well, if, their they, had an, if they had answered that, yeah, I do know about ISIS and I support them, what would the reaction of the border people be? They, my guess is they wouldn't be let in. So how does it not have, no, how does it not have the, significance? Somebody, 
somebody actually who feels who feels sympathetic towards a, a terrorist organization, basic first thing is what does that mean? I support ISIS, um, and the second thing is, I mean, first thing is somebody who is who you'd want to screen out probably wouldn't support ISIS to begin with. Or probably wouldn't acknowledge supporting ISIS to begin with. You know, I don't and know how you can. I don't not, know how you can use words like "probably like" when we're talking about interviewing people who are coming across a border illegally. How can you say? How can you be giving people so much of the benefit of the doubt? And again, I'm all for. I mean, you can't use this as for carte blanche uh, uh, procedure or process or anything like that. But again, I don't know. I think we're trying to be politically correct here more than we're using common sense. I don't know. I mean, it, you could ask me if it makes common sense to ask Haitians how they feel about ISIS, because that's who was crossing the border. I mean, what this basically is, is it's basically just uh, religious profiling. It would be, it's the equivalent Most of, of Haiti's Christian. Why is, it, why is it religious profiling? No, what I'm saying is there's no point asking Haitians how they feel about ISIS. What's the problem? Th- again, Joel, I don't mean to com- be uh, yeah, aggressive yeah. here, but, sure. but, but I understand your point, but what's the problem again they're the coming the they're coming in through a porous border yeah. illegally as asylum seekers asking to be accepted by the country i don't see if asking them if they support a terror organization or how they feel about a terror organization is a bad question no matter and then if you asked a white guy who had swastikas all over him what his thoughts are on nazis yeah but the difference is when it's a white guy with swastikas all over him it's a guy who you've identified that might be uh, might have uh, an interest in the Nazi party. If it's just everybody who is asked, then what you're doing is you're basically we're not just you're, asking you're really everybody. Profiling. But you are asking. We're not everybody. asking everybody, Joel. We're asking those that cross a border crossing illegally as asylum seekers or refugees, not right. people that are crossing with their family in a motorhome with all their papers in order. Exactly. But what you're doing is you're asking every single person who enters the Canada and claims refugee status. How they feel about uh, you know how they feel about having a woman for a boss. I mean, what's happening is the quest- The reason that the questions were objected to is because they're designed to racially profile a particular or- a particular religious group, mm-hmm. and it's and that's problematic. And it's not political correctness. It's not political correctness. If like let me let me put it this way: If I were a police officer who regularly pulled over people who were black, right? And you said, well, why would you do that? I said, well, when I, when I pull them over, more often than not, I find warrants or I find contraband or something like that. And if you say, well, you can't do that just because they're black, I'd say, well, you're, you're just profiling. I'm just... Yeah, but you're pulling over somebody who's, who's in the country, who, who's, who's participating with the rest of the citizenry, not somebody who is slipping into a border uh, through, a, through a porous hole and, and claiming refugee status or asylum seeking. That's way different than somebody who's just going about their business, daily business, you know, within a city somewhere. Well, what you're actually doing, though, is you're... you're you're profiling somebody who's presented themselves to an officer inside Canada and made a claim for refugee protection, which they're entitled to do. And look, and let me put it this way. Let me, let me explain this, too. I don't like... Then are we, not entitled, are, we not anybody. En- are we not entitled to ask them if they, if they, how they feel about a terrorist organization? Now, I, I think we're splitting questions here, because I asked Maybe. you initially about, uh, you, you know, whether you, the question on ISIS, whether they supported ISIS or not. That's what I'm, I'm talking about right now. Right. And then you slipped in the woman as a boss. No, I, I can see there you're getting a little too close. That's, yeah. that's different. 
I mean, because you could ask anybody of, of any race or whatever what they would feel about how they would feel about a, a woman being a boss. You could get a variety of answers as well. So right. uh, that I don't agree with. But asking them, you know, if uh, and, you know, I, I, with all due respect, I don't think doing one leads to the other. I think no? they're very much separate. No, they don't, because everyone should be assessed individually. Every question should be assessed individually, just as every refugee should be assessed individually. But, you know, uh, again, woman is a boss. That's a different question. But asking them how they feel about a terrorist organization, I don't think that's a bad question. Well, I'll be honest. It's not. Let me put it this way. When what you what will you when you uh, frame the questions in this way, what you're doing is you're you're identifying certain people, you're picking out certain people, and how you feel. And what about we're and who are picking out here is terrorists. You're not picking out, but you're not picking out terrorists by asking them if they support terrorism. Like you're not, you know what I mean? You're not. You're at, you're picking out people who self-identify as terrorists, but. Is that really good police work? It's like walking around. It's like having police officers just walking up to people randomly on the street and asking them if they're committing crimes. Excuse me, are you committing a crime? Are you committing a crime? And the answer to that is well, probably no, going to be no. But it's the the better point is it's just not good police work. Uh, again, I don't think you can compare those two, use those two examples because one's a citizen in the country, the other one is trying to get into the country uh, through other means. So I really don't. I think that's an apples and oranges discussion. I guess um, my I guess my point about the que- asking a question about ISIS isn't so much that you're you know you're allowed to ask any relevant question. My point about the question about ISIS is it's not it's not a value it's not a useful it's not a useful question. Um, it but is. The, the, it is if they answer yes. But it. And how can you say? If, <laughs> sorry, go ahead. No, it's okay. It's I. My, I guess my point about asking about ISIS isn't that it's. Uh, if you answer yes, it's absolutely useful. But no one's going to answer yes. And I guess when you look at the when you look at the questionnaire, I don't know. Fifty percent of the people that have come in from Quebec have been sent back out, and they thought they were getting in. So again. <sighs> I don't think this is as cut and dry as you're laying it out to be. Uh, I don't know. I mean, when, I think when you look at uh, the government's response to this uh, questionnaire coming to light, it wasn't the concern wasn't about uh, somebody's support or lack of support of ISIS. It was about the sort of values, uh, the yeah. values charter component of the questionnaire, which was which really does speak more to the women covering up or being a boss. So and the question about ISIS. Look, I, I'll grant you. You know what? If you want to, if you want to ask people if they support a terrorist organization and hear their answer, if you're a law enforcement officer, you're certainly in, you're certainly entitled to do that. But it's really the it's really the values charter uh, kind of component of this uh, questionnaire that was uh, was problematic for people. Do you find this similar to what Kelly Leach was suggesting in uh, the Charter of Values? It's. I mean, it's got the same sort of tenor about it, I think. I mean, it's got, it starts out with a statement about Canada being uh, a very liberal country that believes in freedom of religious practice and equality between men and women, and then asks a question after that. So it's clearly there's a statement of values followed by a question about people's values. So it, it has that in common with it, yeah. Would the wording have changed things? Can you ask the same question with different wording? Because this seems to be more, I'm not sure this is an invasion of human rights as much as it is political correctness. And, I, and, you know, and I'll use the example of those two questions. One is, one isn't. But uh, your thoughts? I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't think that changing the, the language of the question really makes a difference to you know, what the question is. I mean, what you're trying to do is you're trying to probe somebody's religious views. And, uh, you know, and it's not, I mean, on the one hand, 
uh, on the one hand, you could say, well, you know what? We've identified people with these religious views as being problematic in our society, so we feel like we should be able to ask people about them. On the other hand, um, it's something that's irrelevant to the refugee determination process, and it's also something that's it's not particularly helpful or useful. What you're doing is you're, you're profiling. And it's, you know, it's just, honestly, it's poor police work, it, and it really is not effective. Uh, you, in your opinion, this has gone too far as far as this questionnaire, and, and I don't disagree with you. There's certain yeah. questions there that shouldn't be there. Um, that being said, um, we have to be fair about this. Are you concerned at all that we'll try, to, in, our, in our attempt to be too fair or too politically correct, we won't do our due diligence here? No, I don't think so. I think, I think when you look at the 40 questions, 38, 37 of them are absolutely fine and reasonable and normal. Um, I think what, it's, what happens is we always kind of get into this sort of a gray area where we start steering into people's values or people's ideals and uh, going a little bit too far. But I don't, think, I don't think we have to worry about being too sensitive and missing somebody as a result. A lot of times what happens is that the people who you miss are people who these kinds of questionnaires would not have caught, like the guy from Edmonton. Uh, you know, guys like that, you know, there's, there was nothing to identify him as being problematic at the time that he arrived. And asking him questions about his views on women wouldn't necessarily have led to any uh, different result. Um, I can't let you go without getting your opinion on uh, the third party or the third country agreement. And because really, it's this is at the source of all of this. Uh, obviously, yeah. these people can't go through the normal border. They will be immediately turned back as opposed to going through a hole in the fence and then claiming asylum or refugee status. Uh, what are your thoughts? How do we how do we address this issue? You know what? I honestly really don't know. The Safe Third Country Agreement is a relatively new thing. Uh, in the past, what used to happen is uh, people would come to Canada through the United States and claim at a, at a port of entry. They'd be processed immediately, and they'd be let in, and their claims would be conducted. And then when their claims were rejected, they would then be returned to the United States. That, to me, always seemed to make a lot more sense. Uh, what, you, what you've done is you basically created a legal regime where people are encouraged to... Um, you know, basically cross irregularly, and it just doesn't seem to be very helpful. What you're doing is you're basically, uh, you know, you're setting up a situation that incentivizes irregular border crossings. My preference would be to get rid of the Safe Third Country Agreement and just deal with people as they are when they cross the border. Uh, it makes things more safe, so you wouldn't have people crossing, you know, at unmarked crossings in the dead of winter, and it also makes things more safe or more secure from a Canadian perspective, because people are able to be, you know, to be met and to be handled when they arrived, rather than allowing someone to kind of come to Canadian immigration enforcement, you know, at a time and place of their choosing. Um, so I think it, honestly, from a, a national security and even a humanity, uh, humanity perspective, it makes more sense to be rid of it. Um, but that's just my two cents. Uh, your thoughts on uh, our reaction, Ralph Goodale's reaction to this? Do you think they would have known about this? Where do you think this questionnaire would have originated? From what it sounds like, it sounds like it originated with the RCMP officers who were operating locally in Quebec. It sounds like it was drafted at a local detachment. And I understand that uh, what happens is they'll locally, in, all, in many cases, they'll create investigative tools uh, that are relative to or relevant to a particular location. So, you know, it doesn't sound like it was something that was filtered down from Ottawa. It sounds like it was something. It was a kind of a makeshift solution to a local problem. So, you know, his, his reaction, I think, is probably reasonable in the circumstances. And I also doesn't, don't think it makes sense to require that these kinds of things get, 
you know, federal, uh, you know, federal national headquarters approval before they're put in, they're put into process. What you had is you had a local officer who, you know, was trying to solve a problem, and made uh, maybe a couple of uh, bad judgments in the form of the questions themselves. So you don't see a change in policy uh, as a result of any of this. Um, if I were the minister, there wouldn't be a change in policy. There would be a correction to this uh, to this questionnaire, and that would be it. I'd move on. Joel Sandaluk has been with his partner, my man Sandaluk and Kingwell LLP, talking about the federal government and uh, they criticizing the RCMP for the questions they are using uh, on asylum seekers as they uh, cross the border into this country. Joel, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. It's my pleasure. Thanks a lot, eh? Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. If you've got young kids, you know that devices are a huge part of their life, and wrestling them from them can be like taking a uh, T-bone off an angry dog. Uh, that being said, uh, where is the balance? These are incredibly educational. I'm always yelling at my kids, get off, get off, do something, read a book, this, that, or the other. When I see them doing things constructively, like playing certain games the school is recommended or educational-type games, I have no problem with that. Um, my kids also big into making movies and videos and doing all kinds of creative stuff like that with them. So, um, you know, I think there's lots of lots of uses other than just sitting there curled up like a C and with your head down and, and banging away on, on some silly game. Uh, so where do you draw the line? A Hamilton trustee has blasted the use of iPads uh, as toys in the classroom. Uh, the board is planning on reassessing uh, how these are being used and uh, why they're being used and how do we get a handle on this so it doesn't get out of hand. Let's bring in Jeff Beatty. He's a trustee, uh, a 9 and 10, vice chair of the board, chair of the policy committee for the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board and on the line with us now. Jeff, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Thank you so much for having me, Scott. So obviously this is uh, a balancing act for, for parents and teachers alike. What is the policy now? When are they used? So, I mean, the, right now we have uh, a broad range of policies that would govern how these uh, devices are used in our schools. Uh, mostly comes down to uh, things like uh, the code of conduct that would be used at individual schools. Um, and, and there's a certain amount of flexibility that's allowed based on uh, the teachers knowing their individual classes and the administrators of the school knowing their individual school communities. Um, of course, we're, we're trying to make sure that we don't have inappropriate uh, content popping up, and whenever possible, uh, we're taking steps to ensure that doesn't happen. Uh, but at the same time, like you said uh, earlier in your preamble, it's, it's the balance of finding um, not being too restrictive to prevent good learning and good use of these tools to enhance learning, um, but at the same time, we don't, we don't want the, the wrong things popping up. Uh, is it right for them to be a, used as a reward, i.e. you finish your homework on time, you finish your assignment on time, you got some five, ten minutes left in the class, you can use them uh, as a reward. Is that, is that um, a good use of tool? You know, I, I think that that's something that, that it's hard to, hard to give a definitive answer on, Scott. I mean, uh, we don't want them used as, uh, as playthings, obviously. Uh, we want them used for instructional purposes, and we want them used to enhance learning. Um, but at the end of the day, we want it to be uh, something that the individual teachers that know their classrooms can make a determination on what's best in that specific uh, situation. Um, is it practical to have a student uh, use that for, for, uh, for learning all the time? I think so. Uh, but again, it's, it's balance and making sure that 
we don't go too far either way of allowing too much leniency or being too restrictive on the other side, Scott. And doesn't at the end it really come down to the content and what it is they're looking at, Jeff? I mean, you know, if they've got five minutes to play a game after they've uh, done their homework, even as a reward, as long as it's an educational-type experience, what's the harm? I, I think you, what you just said is absolutely correct. Um, it, it has to have some relevance, and it should have some um, some learning opportunity. Uh, at the end of the day, we're a learning institution. When when students are at our schools, we want to make sure that they're that they're learning and that they're engaged in in uh, achievement and and advancing uh, their their learning in, in all ways possible. Um, it's it's hard to tell these days what's educational and what's not. I mean, I look at what my my son and my daughter would use on their um, devices when they come home, and it kind of looks fun, but when you start to looking at what they're actually learning in terms of enhancing reading, math, things like that, and then you get into other things like coding and all of the uh, the new ways that uh, digital tools can be used to enhance learning, uh, it's, it's actually pretty exciting. Uh, so how do you control the content? How do you, you know, when, you know, we're obviously reading anecdotal stories here that, you know, right. kids are at school, they got some spare time, they're looking at things that are inappropriate, whether it's this, that, or the other. How do you make sure that, I mean, can you block this stuff? Can you control what they are searching? So right now there are uh, filters that, that are in place. So if a student was sitting there and they were trying to, uh, load up particular content. I mean, they have ways of, of blocking specific websites. If they know them in advance, they can be blocked. Um, then they can also filter out uh, inappropriate words. So if we knew uh, phrases and stuff like that, those would be keyed in so that they wouldn't be able to look up things. But more more basic things like you know, dog and cat, those, you, you don't want to block those from the search engine uh, because uh, they could still be used for, for practical purposes. And I could see this being an ongoing scenario where if all of a sudden a search for this keeps coming up and you find out that it's inappropriate, you block this. Is that monitored enough? Is it, is, is it policed enough? Well, I think it uh, has to do with ongoing feedback with the classroom teachers. Uh, classroom teachers need to uh, be in constant contact uh, with, their, with their principals, the principals up the chain to uh, the people in IT and with their superintendents and have continued dialogue. Like you said, if it's a fast-moving thing, it's like a moving target, right? Uh, there's always going to be changes on the internet. Things are always going to be uh, updated and changing at a, at a speed that's difficult at times to keep up with. But uh, with that dialogue and with ongoing communication back and forth at all times, uh, and of course engaging our, our parents as well, that's really important, uh, We can, I think we can keep on top of it, Scott. I think it's, it's all doable. Would there be a set, um, um, you know, a set uh, list of games, for lack of a better word, or exercises or what have you, uh, that is available to kids if they do have leisure time? So if you are searching, is it a case of them just investigating whatever they want to investigate? Because uh, I can see, obviously, there's a certain amount of creativity and learning involved in that. Or do you say, no, this is, this is where you can go, this is the list of extracurricular or, or educational tools you can use when you're not doing your regular work? So I'm going to use the example, Scott, of uh, my daughter. She's in grade 9. She's got one of our uh, board-issued iPads. So there's a catalog of uh, predetermined uh, apps that can be downloaded onto the, onto the device uh, that have been pre-selected by the board. And uh, she can go through there and choose. 
And if there's something that she feels is missing, you know, there's there's going to be opportunities to have conversations with teachers about uh, perhaps adding to the catalog, and, and I'm sure that they're updating it at a constant pace. Um, I, I think when it comes to their own devices, it's a little more tricky uh, because we don't have the same controls over somebody's individual device other than, like I said, uh, when we have Internet controls and filters in place uh, to, to block out keywords in specific sites. What about kids that do bring their own devices? What's the policy in and around that? Well, those would be governed under our uh, individual school uh, code of conduct. Uh, you know, the classroom teachers right now are going to be responsible for determining what's best for their individual classrooms, like I said. Um, we, we rely on the knowledge of the classroom teacher uh, to determine what's appropriate and what's not, and uh, to determine just the, the, uh, the way that these devices are used. And that's going to vary from classroom to classroom and school to school. I can tell you my own experience, God, is with my kids um, that uh, they're very engaged in the teachers that they have are very engaged in using devices, and uh, as a result, um, they've got some great things. Uh, kids are coming home, they're engaged, they're still working on their work that they're working on at school, and uh, you know they, they continue that learning beyond the classroom as a result. But it, it really varies individually uh, based on the, on the teacher. Do you think it's easier for kids to do work like this now than it was in our day? To be constantly uh, engaged in the classroom, or are they? I think that, uh, again, I can only speak from my own experience. When my kids, uh, I see them extremely engaged, and I, I hear stories about uh, the, their classmates being equally engaged uh, in, in a variety of things, whether it's math or, or uh, reading or coding, like I said. Um, I think that it, it gives them an opportunity, because you have to keep in mind, today's, today's kids are are learning in a different environment than you and I did. It is so much There's, different. We can't stress oh, enough how different it is, can we, Jeff? <laughs> I mean, the, and, and it's changing so fast, you Scott. So uh, we have to be adaptive in the way that we offer uh, enhancements to learning. And, and I think the use of digital tools gives them that, and it makes it relevant, too. You want to make sure uh, that kids can see the relevance in what they're learning. That really helps them to become even more engaged. Uh, I always struggled when I was a student, when I was learning just, you know, with paper and pen. Uh, if it wasn't relevant to what I was experiencing in my own life, it's a little more of a challenge to try to learn. I, I can identify with that wholeheartedly. Is learning more fun now? Um, because we hear of the I, pressures because the load, the, the load seems to be heavier. But, you know, because with technology and ease comes heavier workload, not more leisure time. So is it more yeah. fun? I, I think... I think for some, I mean, every every student's going to have an individual outlook, right? It, it's going to be based on on the student more than anything else. Uh, I think the potential is there for for some students to become more engaged. And if you want to, you want to call it fun. I think a lot of kids do have fun, and with some parts of their learning, uh, they're still going to have some challenges in other areas, and that's that's the norm. Uh, I think for for all kids across the system, but. Uh, for those that are engaged in using a lot of these new tools and using digital media in a responsible way, of course, 
the the opportunity for them to come home and say, yeah, this was fun. I really enjoyed this. I think that there's a good chance that, that they would look at it like that for sure. Uh, this discussion uh, that we're having now and, and you know, what these uh, um, iPads, boards, whatever are going to be used for, mm-hmm. um, is this going to change any policy? Is this going to result in a, in a clear, more set, a, a, a set of guidelines that are a lot more clear than what's there now? I think uh, I think what we want to do, Scott, we're we're gonna we're gonna look at this under our 21st century learning policy, which is going to come up for review in the new year. The conversation that we had back on the 4th of October, uh, that was like a, a bit of a, we'll call it an opening opening number, if you will, uh, so that staff have an idea of the concerns that are coming forth to trustees. And obviously, you've heard kind of the the varying. Uh, aspects of that conversation as we move forward like uh, like I said we want to make sure it isn't too restrictive to inhibit learning we also want to make sure that our students are safe in their uh, their their learning environment whether that's an online environment whether that's a classroom environment Uh, student safety will always be paramount so it's finding the balance between those two areas as we move forward and I think we'll be able to come up with something that will will meet the test of both is it the Wild West, or do we have control of this? Because it seemed a few years ago, man, we were shooting from the hip. Uh, do we have more control of this, do you think? Or is, it sti- think or, or is it still the kids that know more than the teachers? Well, I, th- <laughs> I think in some cases it might be the kids that know more than the parents. Uh, I know that if I need my phone reprogrammed, I'm asking my 13-year-old. Oh, absolutely. Asking, uh, yeah. uh, but I, I think, like I said, we've got controls in place to ensure... Uh, a certain amount of uh, of control over over what's being uh, watched and seen. Uh, is it a hundred percent? Perhaps not, but uh, I think we can continue to work to get towards that. And a lot of it has to do with continued engagement with our parents to ensure that the message that that we're bringing forward on responsible digital citizenship is going to mirror that uh, that parents are bringing to their children at home. Uh, there has to be that connection between the two. Uh, but I, I think as a whole, uh, we're going to be able to come up with uh, some pretty some pretty dynamic solutions. How is this, we're talking about the kids, how is this changing the teacher's job? How does this change the teacher's role? How is it different in the classroom now than it was 10 years ago? I think um, the use of technology is going to always uh, present some interesting opportunities. It's always going to present some interesting challenges. Um, our teachers are always engaged in professional development to learn more about uh, uh, these tools and how to use them uh, to offer uh, to, and to enrich curriculum and to enrich learning. Um, and, and it's an evolution of teaching practice. I mean, if you go back, way back, Scott, I mean, you can talk about the use of the slide rule and then it went to the, hmm. the calculator and then it went to the, to the desktop computer and now we're talking about I. And, it's uh, funny you should say that, not. Jeff, because I remember having this debate in high school about the calculator yeah. and when they were allowed and when they weren't allowed and bring them out. I remember having an older exactly. math. Te- I remember an older math teacher who used to say to us all the time, "Okay, get out your computers," and she was referring to the calculator, which was hardly a computer. No, and I can remember the transitions. Scott, I mean, in grade nine, I was one of the last classes that used a typewriter. And then we yeah. went into using uh, <laughs> desktops the, the following year. So there's always an evolution. As technology changes, uh, our, our teachers are, are going to be learning how to use the, the, the newest equipment, the newest uh, cutting-edge technology to enhance learning in the classroom. So, I mean, it's, it's ever-changing. 
Um, and we, we, of course, want to make sure that we're supporting uh, their learning as well, and, and I think that we continue to do that. All right, Jeff Beattie has been with us, trustee 9 and 10, vice chair of the board, chair of the policy committee for the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board, talking about your kids and their devices and finding the balance between the two. Jeff, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you so much, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.